0: Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting with Bruce Kelly, and we are talking today with Lorenzo Esparza. He's the Chief Executive Officer and Founding Principal at Manhattan West. We're going to get to know Lorenzo a little bit. Uh, We're going to learn about his firm and how he works with entertainers and athletes and Hollywood executives and... uh, and how he really likes alternative investments. And here we are as we record this. It's November 23rd. Uh, you folks are going to be hearing it on the, I think, the 28th of November, the Monday. But uh, we're just before Thanksgiving here. So we're also going to get a little bit of a, maybe a prediction on how some of these football games are going to shape up tomorrow. And by the time you listen to this, you'll know if we're right or wrong. So there you go. We're, a little bit of time travel action there. Uh, Bruce, how you doing? You all ready for Thanksgiving? Uh,
1: yes, we are. Thank you, Jeff. How about you guys down in North Carolina?
0: We're ready. We're whatever they
1: do. All I do is eat. I just bought the pumpkin pie this afternoon from my neighborhood bakery. So okay. Yeah, good stuff. I'm cheating stuff. on that. I'm not making the dessert.
0: <laughs> Lorenzo, how about you? You ready for Thanksgiving? Yeah, can't wait. Have the family in town and a uh, couple of teenagers, and we're ready to go. All right. Sounds like a good time. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for, for participating and helping us out, and... uh why don't you tell us a little bit about Manhattan West? Where are you based, and uh, what kind of a what kind of an advisory firm is that? Sure.
2: Well, we are uh, we are based in Century City, which is uh, in Los Angeles on the west side of Los Angeles. We are uh, a firm that manages money on behalf of uh, individuals, uh, high net worth family offices, and what have you. Uh, I will I will describe the firm in in two ways. One, we have a private wealth ecosystem where we do traditional investment management, we do business management, so personal CFO services, we also do tax, uh, insurance, and planning. So we try to create this ecosystem where we're a one-stop shop for clients and and they appreciate having all of their uh, financial matters handled under one roof. That's one element of the firm. The second is that we're a proprietary investment firm in the alternative space. So we offer proprietary strategies in real estate, private equity, venture capital, and private debt. And and that's really our differentiator is that we believe that, you know, building our own investment strategies and leaning into the responsibility of returns is how we set ourselves apart from folks that just say, oh, hire me and I'll go hire the best managers. Um, and so that's who we are.
0: Yeah, I like that. That's interesting. I So much outsourcing these days. It's always fun to talk to people that... Uh... That do their own portfolio management and i'm assuming um, with you working with a lot of entertainers athletes and uh hollywood folks that you're you're working with uh, high-end clients is that correct mostly high network yeah yeah
2: yeah look i would say because you know you have to be a qualified investor for our alternatives and because our belief around asset allocation you know entails uh, a third in alternatives a third in fixed income and a third in equities you end up, you know, serving the, the more high net worth space.
1: Yeah, that's a very high asset allocation to alternatives. I mean, right, Jeff, you can never get away with that in a, a major brokerage.
2: Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, look, I came from J.P. Morgan and, you know, J.P. Morgan Private Bank uh, speaks in those terms of a third, a third, a third. and Okay, you know,
1: but that's a private bank. That's not really what I'm thinking of is more retail brokerage, I guess. Yeah,
2: I mean, look, we're, we're not a retail firm.
1: Your clients have uh, $5, $10 million, I guess, to walk in the door if they're getting that kind of allocation.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not one single allocation. I think what we, you know, for everybody, it's it's really a, a, a viewpoint that we believe is most appropriate for, you know, investment returns that we think are going to hold up better in years like this, right? So we start with that third, a third, a third structure, and then we shape it to the individual client. So, for some clients, you know, they don't have any alternatives. In fact, uh, you know, we could have we have clients that have 100% fixed income. So it just depends on building the the allocation for the individual client, making sure it's suitable and 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 what's appropriate. But again, the the firm belief is that we believe in uh you know a third, a third, a third as a very uh, appropriate and and kind of best practice strategy. high net worth investors
0: how how long have you had that philosophy because i find a lot of people now are saying yeah alternatives because we've been dealing with you know the melees of all the stuff over the past two years but have you have you been saying a third a third a third you know for the past 10 years i was just gonna say we've been we've been preaching that for
2: over a decade and um you know when, when you have markets like this year, um, we've looked really smart. Um, I think if you're putting a third of those alternatives into things like venture and private equity, you know, you could, you could do as well as the public equity markets in years when public equity markets are up. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I think, you know, if you look at how those type of allocations perform over extended periods, you know, there's a reason that uh, the institutions and the endowments are 50% alternatives. In some cases, even more than that, right? If, if they thought the best thing to do was go 60-40, the, you'd see that. But I, I don't know of a, of a big institution that would
0: run an allocation in a 60-40 structure. How many of your clients, you said you have a mix, you have some clients that are 100% fixed income. How many of your clients actually are, are following that or do you have allocated into... 30% or 33% equities, 33% bonds, and 33% alternatives?
2: I would say 80% of the clients are using that, that baseline. And, and again, it's more of a, of a structure from which you shape the allocation. So, you know, depending on where you're at in a market cycle, Right. Uh, you might overweight a little bit more to fixed income or a little bit more to equities like, you know, equities are, are down so much where we appreciate the opportunity set right now in public equities. Um, fixed income is finally paying a yield. And so we like, uh, you know, a little bit of exposure than just 33 percent to fixed income, you know, which, yeah, but it depends on the individual client set and what their what their you know, needs are. Uh, if it's in- income need or growth need,
0: exactly. In addition to where you are in the market cycle, where you are in your life cycle, right? If you're somebody right. in your 30s, I don't know how do you ele- do you still pitch a third, a third, a third to as you would to somebody in their 80s? Yeah, no.
2: To your to your point, that that's a good example. Look, if it's a a client in their 30s that has a 40, 50 year time horizon, you're probably minimizing the fixed income. Uh, down to 20 or 10 percent, but it, again, it's based on on what their risk tolerance is. I I have I have clients that are young that say I don't want to take any risk. In which case, you know, you don't you don't push them into riskier assets. You you follow what you think is appropriate for them. Um, you know, number one and number two. You know, again, if it's a client in their 70s and they don't want to have, you know, uh, maybe a, a nine or 10 year private equity exposure you know you would only do that if if they said look we're thinking about you know this element of our portfolio as part of a wealth transfer strategy and so don't think about me as a 78 year old patriarch think of this money as for our children or our children's children so you know th- that's i think that's really the the art and science of it is that you just don't get mired in this um you know structure that everything is a certain way if it's a 30 year old or everything's a certain way if it's a 75 year old you really have to focus on what the time horizon of the money is and you take into consideration the risk tolerance of the individuals and 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 market cycle look we you know when when the markets were really oversold that's when we're getting interested um when, when covid hit last uh, in 2020 and you know, we were getting folks that wanted to sell out. We were saying this is a great opportunity. So it, again, it's a comp- It's starting with the baseline of this third, a third, a third, and then really allocating based on suitability, time horizon, and risk tolerance, and and then and market cycle where you're at there.
0: Okay, we're we're talking in real broad generalizations here, but let's let's kind of dig down a little bit into these alternatives, because that's a that's a universe and a world of its of its own are you looking at hedge funds, private equity, venture capital? Do you ever use liquid alternatives, you know, mutual funds that have alternative strategies? And where does it start? If you, if you have a client coming in and they say, okay, I'll go with your third or third or third, what's it going to look like? So, you know, I, I appreciate that question because I always say to folks, look, we're
2: not looking to invest in pork bellies. I, I use that as an extreme example, right. Or, uh, you know, timber futures. That's, that's not for our. our it's clients. not trading
1: places. In other words, Lord.
2: Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, uh, look, I, we we like private equity uh, as an as a meaningful part of an alternatives uh, allocation. We like venture capital as a meaningful part of that alt uh, allocation. Um, and then number two, or excuse me, number three, real estate and private debt. So those are our core allocations. I would tell you that you know my feeling about hedge funds, particularly long short hedge funds, is that there are you know a lot of them. It's very hard to pick the winner. Um, the market, the equity markets, have made a lot of great you know long short managers look you know bad. Um, I think it's very hard to get an edge in the in the hedge fund space. So we're looking for you know. Four of those alternative asset classes that I just named, where you can have more, you know, predictable outcomes. I'll just use real estate as an example. If you own a portfolio of apartment buildings that pay a, you know, a coupon, and you're not overly leveraged, and you're in a environment with really strong rent, you know, uh, history, um, you know, that that's a predictable type of uh, of structure. Uh, you know, that that's. We don't think that kind of investment is going to lose fifty percent, right? So, um, so that's a that's an alternative that we feel pretty good about. Um, same thing with you know private equity. It, provided you've got, you know, good strategies within private equity, private equities outperform public equities over any you know measurement period for the most part. Um, maybe not like a two-year cycle, but if you look at a ten-year cycle, fifteen-year cycle. You know, I like private equity uh, for that reason. It's it's a more, you know, predictable outcome. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I'd say the same thing about private debt and venture. You know, we're looking for some of those more stable, more reliable asset classes where, um, you know, clients can go, okay, yeah, I, I, I can expect blank. Mm-hmm.
0: Most advisors have always been told, this is a mutual fund, take it or leave it. But generic investment options aren't good enough to meet the evolving expectations of today's clients. Helios Tools solves the customization challenge. It's a tech-driven process developed by Helios' team of investment experts and quantitative researchers that allows advisors to build and customize model portfolios based on unique client needs and preferences in just a few clicks. Find out how Helios Tools can help you create a better client experience and set your firm apart in a cost-effective, scalable way. Visit www.heliosdriven.com forward slash Helios tools to learn more. I like that you're, you know, the, I like the spread across stocks, bonds, and alternatives, but to me... Thirty-three percent in stocks for a younger person, especially. How do you make that case?
2: Well, that's what that's what I I would say related to sh- starting with that baseline and then shaping it for uh, you know a younger individual that has a time a longer time horizon. Again, it's more about the time horizon of the money than the time horizon of the individual um, and and that risk tolerance. So, you know, you could you could if it was a a younger Individual that had a desire for higher reward and higher risk. Uh, as a result, you know maybe you're looking at more 50% in uh, in equities and and 30% in alts and 20% in fixed. So again, it's more. You start with a baseline and then you shape it from there.
0: Right. Okay. What about access? Um, not every advisor is going to be doing building portfolios at this level but there must be ways that other advisors can manage their own client portfolios and get some access to to alternatives, right? Do you have to be of a certain size? Do your clients have to be of a certain net worth? yeah I mean,
2: so so we do uh, manage mostly qualified investors and and have to be of a certain size. you You asked a question earlier that I didn't answer, which was related to liquid alternatives. We're actually in the process of looking at a couple uh, liquid alternatives that would fit the you know the place of of the alternatives that we're using. Um, and and that's yet to be determined. So that that is part of the challenge, Jeff. You know, you, you have uh, a market uh, of $37 trillion in private wealth, but only 3% of that money is allocating to alts. And so, you know, it's a huge market that, that it, you know, if you look at what Apollo and, you know, Blackstone, some of these bigger alternative managers are out there now trying to take market share of that $37 trillion, you know, TAM. So, you know, as a result of that, because there's, the, there's such low penetration, you don't have a ton of products. But guess what's happening? All the big managers are trying to fill that void and they're creating products. And we're looking at those ourselves. We're trying to figure out what's the best way to create an alternative set of uh, investment strategies for, you know, the, the, the main street investor.
0: What about the fees? Aren't alternatives supposed to be much more expensive? How do you make that case? I mean, look, I'm a believer that you get what you pay for,
2: right? I mean, we we typically, you know, don't discount our fees, and because we believe we're doing it, we do a good job, right? Um, and so, um, you know, in the case of fees, they just are what they are. And I I say to folks, look, everyone asks about fees. Uh, I would tell you that we expect performance on a net of fees basis that's going to be, you know, uh, acceptable to what you're looking for in this asset class. So. You know, I, I would tell you that there is a race to zero with fees in the liquid, you know, space. You see it happening with Schwab. You see it happening with, you know, Fidelity. You see it happening with all of the big managers. You know, there, there's this fee compression that's happening. But look, I again, I'm a believer that you get what you pay for. So, um, you know, I, I don't apologize for fees. I think we, uh, you know, deliver great service think we deliver great results for people, and you know, you, you either want to, you know, be partners with us and, and work with us and pay the fee, or or you don't, and,
0: and, and that's okay too. Do you get pushback on fees from clients? Because these have to be, this has to be the most expensive part of the portfolio, right? Uh, of
2: course, yeah. Um, so I, I would say for the most part, no. Um, but are there clients that ask about the fees on, on alternatives and say, oh, that, that's more than, you know, the, the 75 basis points my previous advisor was charging. Um, and, um, and so, you know, we, we make the case for why we think
0: it's worth it. And, and lockups, I know there are lockups with the, especially with the sophisticated stuff you're dealing with, right? Yeah. Um, that's something that it seems like it's, it's you're handling because, you know, like you already said, you've got somebody that. You know, if they have, if it's somebody in their 80s, they might be looking at it. It's an inheritance type situation. Yeah. How do you manage that? I mean, they're, you know, when you're in something that where you have to be in that for seven years, you're going to, you could go through anything. You could have anything like what happened this past two years. I don't know how many people were expecting inflation to hit a 40 year high or the Fed to get aggressively into trying to manage it with interest rates. But you're, you're locked into some of these things, right?
2: So, so yes and no. I mean, look, I, I can't speak for, you know, the universe of alternatives out there, but it, certainly there are alternatives that have seven, 10, 12 year lockups. Ours range from, you know, two years to seven years and I think with extensions, maybe nine. Um, having said that, in many cases, there is a secondary market for selling alternatives. And so um, while investors should be mindful of whatever lockup they agree to, um, there, you know, in in an emergency case, someone has a liquidity problem. You know, again, there are there are secondary markets for for selling funds and what have you. So, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily, um, you know, uh, uh, like a Hotel in California where you can't get out. Um, it, again, it just depends on it depends on the fund. It depends on. You know what, what, who the underlying managers are, but, but that's something that's not been an issue for us. Bruce,
0: do you have anything for Lorenzo?
1: Yeah, Lorenzo, I just wanted to follow up with you on, you know, your, your strategy and the managers you choose. If you care to, like, for real estate, for example, I, I write a lot about uh, real estate investment REITs, public REITs, private REITs, because the brokers, um, retail brokers, sell a lot of those products. Just curious as to some of the managers that you guys like or prefer in that space on real estate?
2: So the first thing I would tell you is that for the most part, we're a proprietary manager. So we manage real estate
1: in-house. What kind of portfolio do you, do you have?
2: So we, we have two different strategies. One is a, is an income strategy where folks own, uh, you know, a, a pro rata share of a pool of apartment buildings, and then those uh, those distribute quarterly. Uh, rents or distributions right. and then the other is a strategy related to buying industrial buildings and then we do value-add industrial buildings where we're buying them we're improving them putting new tenants and then we sell them so those are the two areas where we're focused uh, in real estate
1: how big is the in-house allocation or in-house fund
2: um i you know i i want to say it's you know between two and three hundred million in, in real estate
1: oh it's sizable yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, not compared to Starwood, but yeah, it's it's decent.
1: Well, yeah, but um, I mean, your firm has yeah. what in total in assets under your roof? Uh, just under a billion. So it's a sizable amount.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, You know, we have a we have a a, a good sized team, very experienced uh, professionals in the space. Right. And that's that's the case around all of our alternatives. We we've got folks that have been you know or have experience in each of the asset classes in which they're working. But the thing I would tell you, you know, I don't like uh, non-traded REITs. If you look closely at non-traded REITs, typically that comes from broker-dealer world where, you know, you can charge up to 12% because the broker that sells them is getting, you know, a 5% commission plus the brokerage, you know, house has to yeah, get. You get a, a,
1: seven, a, a, five to seven, the house gets a couple of points, the manager takes a couple of points. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge markup. You know. Yeah, I, again,
2: that's why I've never been in the business of uh, since I've been at, you know, and JP Morgan and here, I don't I'm not, I don't trade in non non traded REITs. Um, no, no offense to anybody that does. I just it's not something that I believe in uh, in terms of public REITs. I absolutely believe that there is a place for them in liquid portfolios. And, and we use those in building our liquid portfolio allocations when we think the opportunity set is there. As you know, REITs could be up, you know, 40 percent one year and down 40 percent. So similar to emerging markets equities, you know, you just you allocate accordingly. You know, that's that's really, you know, the way we view it.
1: Yeah. So I I was just looking at your profile a little bit. You've been in the business. 20 plus years or so, 22 years since you got out of law school, it looks like?
2: Yeah, in in that range, you know, I'm 48, almost 49.
1: Hey, non-age disclosure here, Lorenzo. (laughs) That's okay. I'm not embarrassed, but I
2: always say I don't look a day over 47, so there you
1: go. Just interesting, you know, and you cited KKR and Blackstone, and this is something both Jeff and I have have written about, and you've seen it since the credit crisis, you've seen these... Big walls. I call them Wall Street firms. who yeah. Never have cared about an RIA or an independent broker dealer before 2008, nine or ten, and they are making this push out into the RIA independent advisor rep market place. Exactly. Um, you've seen that over the arc of your career is what I'm saying. That's why I say you go back 20, 22 years or so. And how do you? What's been surprising to you about that, and what um? And again, a long-term trend investment news has been covering for years. And what are you seeing now? Who are some of the, the, you know, like Goldman Sachs is buying, is trying to get into the, into the uh, RAA custody market for crying out loud. You know. Yeah. Um. They're probably yeah. even knocking on your door to do that. So, they already have. <laughs> yeah. It's so it's just it's just well, what surprises you about that as kind of a person, a denizen of Wall Street yourself.
2: Well, I would say, look, I would say it's really on, only in the last few years that you've seen like, you know, Aries and Apollo. Right. Making a push into the into the private wealth space. And I think it's a function of, of a couple things. One, you know, they've already got pretty good share of the institutional space. Right. And they, you know, there's fee compression in the institutional space, not a lot of, uh, you know, fee compression in the retail space. So. It goes back to what I shared earlier: this 37 trillion dollar market, and only three percent of of private wealth clients are accessing alts. So the, they're viewing it as a big market to tap.
1: Yeah, Ohio already has all its pension funds that it's going to have. Right, right, right. There's exactly. There's no more new pension, f- state, or city well municipal retirement
2: plans out there. Right? It, exactly. There's only one New York Common Fund. Right. After you sell to them, there's no, you know. But uh, but anyway, um, so I think that's you know that's the reason they're moving into that space i think they're that's that's what's happening and then with goldman you know first you saw them move into the banking side they right. converted right. to a bank holding company after the financial crisis and um now they did you know marcus I, I don't know how well it's doing some people tell me it hasn't been doing that well um and now i think they look at then
1: they bought united capital right then right. they trying to get they tried to get their custody group off the ground and that yeah. was kind of in fits and starts as I understand it. you know it's a tough market to crack for crying Out loud, you know, right.
2: I look I've spoken with them. I, I actually you know respect that organization and I think uh, they look at you know Schwab and Fidelity who have consolidated the custody business in a significant way. and so they have moved into it. And not sheepishly, right? They've they've put they've hired a lot of people in that space. Now, um, do I think they're going to capture a ton of market share? I don't know. I think look, it, it's Schwab and Fidelity do a very good job, and and so before Goldman takes their fair share of that market, they're going to have to really figure out execution, and um, and and so I think it'll a little bit of, it'll be a little bit more time before they do that. But but look, I mean. If I said to a client, do you want to custody with Goldman or Schwab, I bet nine out of 10 are going to say Goldman. And so for that reason, you know, you'll you'll continue to find some, that uh, they will find opportunity in the private wealth space.
1: And who else is kind of knocking on the door from Wall Street looking to crack open this, you know, wealth management?
2: You know, it's really, I think the next element of it is like a layer deeper, right? It's private equity saying, let's roll up and consolidate the independent wealth managers that independent well, That's RIAs. what they're doing right now. Yeah, right. But so when you say Wall Street, I think it's I think it's big private equity is continuing to do that. And and now all of a sudden the the RIAs have gotten bigger, right? And they're right. starting to look like the very wirehouses that those people left. Yes. And yes. so that's where I see penetration happening is with the with those custodian. excuse me with those RIA roll-ups that are backed by private equity. And so I think you'll continue to see it. The wealth, the RIA space, the wealth management space is a very fragmented business. So I think you'll see a lot more consolidation happening, um, and um, and you'll see a lot more of these, you know, asset managers trying to gather private wealth assets.
1: Yeah, I think it's fascinating. You know, these guys they retire from uh, the wirehouses, and then you know they start their own, uh like you know like Greg Fleming at Rockefeller, right? Yeah. And then he just hires a whole bunch of (laughs) Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley, (laughs) UPS guys. Right. And they create this whole new firm, right? And they're going to sell that firm or do whatever they are going to do with with Rockefeller at some point in time, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, uh, Jeff, back to you.
0: Yeah. uh, Just a couple quick things here. One, I, I didn't get to ask you about crypto. Is that anything that you guys have looked at?
2: Yeah. So the answer is yes. Um, we have, we actually have a digital asset fund uh, that in, within our venture business. And, you know, it's an asset class that we have been observing. And what I say to folks is that you you really have to understand it's not about just buying Bitcoin or ETH or, you know, Solana or the the whatever coins are out there. That's actually not our strategy. What I think, People have to understand, and what I think is interesting about this asset class is that there is, you know, significant blockchain technology and significant Web3 opportunities that are happening. And so you got to think of the companies that are in that business and investing in those companies. And that's what we—that's what we've done in that space. We're not trying to pick, you know, a new coin. We're not looking at, you know, the the Dogecoin or or any of these, you know, things like that, because there's no ability to underwrite these coins. Um, but there is an ability to underwrite a company that is in this in, in the business of, of blockchain technology. So that's kind of the way we look at it. Um, we're we're not um, you know, interested in, in trying to play uh, you know in 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 the trading of these coins i think if you look at the ftx story obviously you know they had a a, a trading arm that who knew was taking client capital but they, but they were taking client capital and then trading it in a highly volatile asset class right it yeah. shocked everybody but um but that but but anyway we we think that that that, that the te- technology of the business the internet of things and the the way that the economy is moving toward blockchain technology, we think that's important and it's not going away. And so what's happening now is this washout of all of the, you know, retail investors or the unsophisticated investors that think you can make a buck by buying, you know, a coin uh, and, and not having any real due diligence. And so once that washes out, we believe there is a real economy emerging around, you know, blockchain tech and Web 3.0 and and other, you know, uh, elements of, of, of that sector. So, yeah, it's just a matter of how you play it.
0: So you're not thinking that FTX is the beginning of the end of crypto? No. I, do I think? I,
2: look, I think it's the beginning of regulation, as it as it should be. Um, I think that uh, that that digital assets will have a place. You know, am I as bullish? I heard Kathy Wood said Bitcoin's going to get to a million dollars. Yeah, I, I, I hope I'm saw that. that you. Yeah, <laughs> and so look, do I believe that? I, you know, I don't know if I believe that. Um, but um, but I think that there's there there's a place for that, um, provided there's regulation that comes in. And I and I think that's, you know, a, a, a you know, foregone conclusion. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's early. It's it's this is this is similar to the tech wreck. Uh, you know, everyone put their money in, you know, Pets.com and, and all these companies that had no earnings and, and no revenue and cash, you know, burning cash flow. So once that washed out, though, there was a place for Google, there was a place for, you know, uh, Amazon and what have you. Those were real companies. And that's what's going to happen here. You're washing out all of the, you know, garbage, and you're left with, you know, the 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 companies that have some business that's legitimate uh, within this sector. So there you go. I,
0: I want to ask you a, a couple more topics. I'm going to go through here quickly. Uh, are we in the midst of a recession, or are we heading toward a recession? From and how are you setting your investment strategies? with that in mind
2: sure so I mean look I talked to some friends that you know have exposure to the Fed in a deeper level and I think the biggest challenge the Fed is having with defining and answering the question of whether or not we're in a recession is what metrics do we use to to evaluate and so um, you know I think there are pockets of recession um, but I you know I think the inflation issue that is really a global issue Somehow, you know, people are missing the point that inflation is not just a domestic problem. I'm, I'm going to London for, for Christmas and, you know, and I was in London earlier. I was in Singapore earlier in the year. And, and inflation is happening everywhere. And, and there's a very easy answer for it. We, we flooded the, the market with cash. We made cash cheap. The Fed probably was too aggressive. And so, you know, with supply chain disruption, with the world coming to a halt and then reflating, you know, if you didn't think inflation was coming, you were really asleep at the wheel. So, um, you know, are we in a recession? uh, And is this inflation, you know, crushing us? I think if inflation will abate, I I think it's a normal cycle that you don't just turn it off in, in a quarter or two. I think it takes about a year and a half to work its way through the system, so I believe by the end of 23, you know, inflation will will have moderated significantly. Um, I do think the Fed's moving too fast, but, uh, but, um, you know, I I would expect a slowdown next year, certainly, you're seeing real estate, you know, residential real estate prices go down, Uh, you're seeing unemployment start to tick up, and those are the ingredients for having a, a recession. Now, do I think it's gonna be this deep, terrible recession like we had with um, you know the slowdown in COVID and then obviously the financial crisis? No, I, I don't. I think this, is a, this, is, this will be a more modest uh, slowdown.
0: Now, we're gonna wrap it up here with a little bit of fun. Uh, Lorenzo, I know your son is a big football star, so I know you're familiar with the game. Thursday is Thanksgiving. The Detroit Lions have traditionally always played on that day. That's at least my whole life. A lot of people uh-huh. don't know this, but it used to be just the Detroit Lions and somebody else.
1: Yeah, it was always the Lions, right, Jeff, like back in the 70s? Yeah, the it, was, 60s it and always 70s. used to be
0: just the Lions and the Bears or whatever. Now there's three games. Yeah. but And as a beaten-down, lifelong Lions fan, this is like our Super Bowl. Uh, so <laughs> we we get to watch them Every year, so I want Lorenzo. I want you to tell me who you think is going to win. It's the the Buffalo Bills. I think they're seven and three. The Lions run a three game win streak, which is probably their longest win streak in a few years. So I'm I'm going to go with the 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 Bills on this one. Uh, they're favored <laughs> by about seven or maybe more, but I'm going to take the Bills. But I'll be rooting for the line. That's the
2: twelve thirty game. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to join you on that. I just think it's a quarterback's game, and uh, I like Goff. He's a former L.A. Ram, but uh, Cal guy. But uh, you know, Josh Allen and and Buffalo, they have a very good team. I think they're they're you know certainly one of the top teams in the AFC. So I'm 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 picking the Bills. Bruce Kelly.
0: Uh, I
1: like the Bills in that game too. I'll say by six.
0: All right, but one thing is, Josh Allen is not super healthy, so you know that's I might true. have a, a game time decision tomorrow morning. So, <laughs> uh, and and Lorenzo, tell us about. Let's give a little plug to your son. You said he's he's uh, he's playing in a big game uh, this weekend, right?
2: Yeah, in fact, I'll, I'll give him a plug. So he is the starting quarterback at Sierra Canyon High School. We are in the CIF Southern Section Division Two Championship game Saturday night. Uh, the school's gotten famous because that's where. LeBron's boys play basketball, uh, and you know Kevin Hart's kids. I think the Kardashians' uh, kids go there. Uh, it's a K through 12, but it's a school that you know has has top-notch sports. And so, uh, yeah, we're uh, we we play Inglewood High School. It's going to be a, a battle, um, but if we win this this uh, game, then we move on to the state regionals and hopefully state championship. But but it's a big deal for for this division. It's competitive. oh, good luck
1: with that, Lorenzo. Gosh,
0: Thank that, you. That's exciting. Yeah, thank really you. good. Good luck with that. And uh, I know that this podcast will, will drop after Thanksgiving, but I want to wish you guys a, a happy Thanksgiving. And uh, Lorenzo, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you.
1: And uh, yeah, wish you all the best. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Launching every Monday. It's another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest this week, Lorenzo Esparza. We also want to thank Angelica Astor, our producer. And you can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com. You can also find it at, on uh, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Our Twitter handles, are, uh Jeff's Twitter handle, rather, is at Benji Writer. Write him a note if you care to. My Twitter handle is at BenjiWriter. Stay tuned, and we'll be talking to you next week.